Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm thrilled to be joined today on the show um, by Shannon Adler. Shannon is an adjunct professor of broadcast journalism and media trends at Emerson College, and she was a previous um, writer and producer for CNN. Shannon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sue. Great to be here with you. Great. Um, listen, I want to talk first about a uh, little bit about your background and your years growing up in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, can you talk for a few minutes about that? I sure can. So I was uh, born in, in D.C., um, and I grew up in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. And it was it was interesting because no one really thinks about someone being from the District of Columbia. It's always just a, a city that's tossed around um, um, you know, in political arenas and 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 the like, but it's, it's it's an unusual experience to be from that city, and it's a special place. And I grew up in the Washington D.C. suburbs of Bethesda, um, and I went to an all-girls Catholic school mm-hmm. uh, for 12 years in Bethesda, Maryland, called Stone Ridge, a terrific place, um, which was just a wonderful place to be. Now, I read, Shannon, that um, you said something about D.C. being a misunderstood city. Tell me what you meant by that. It is. Well, all the time, Sue. So no one really, you know, it's interesting because when you say that you were born in D.C., people always then say, really, D.C., D.C., or do you mean somewhere else? And I say, no, D.C., D.C. Um, <laughs> and these are uh, this, this happens all the time. So it is. I mean, Washington is, is a buzzword that is that is politically charged for so many. Mm-hmm. Um, and the term Washington just gets dragged through the mud all the time. But if you actually are born in Washington, you kind of say, hey, wait a minute. Um, and so I think it's up to those of us who um, are from the city to sort of act as tour guides to those who may only be familiar with it through um, you know, political ads and political talk. And while it's certainly that is the pulse of the city. There's a lot more to Washington um, than that. And I think that what people have found when they, first of all, I stop people in the streets, too. If I see people walking around Washington and if I see them going into some, you know, uninspired chain restaurant, I run after them and go, no, 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 let me take you down here. So I've sort of been a tour guide for the last 35 years. Um, But it is a special place. And I think people find that folks that are actually from Washington tend to actually be pretty laid back and almost, I mean, there's almost sort of this, you know, southern genteelness to um, to those of us who grew up there. And I think that's not what people expect to find. Yeah. You know, I never thought about that before, Shannon. And I actually have family in Bethesda, so I understand what you're saying. Um, and, and that's a beautiful area. And there's all kinds of things going on outside of the political arena. Right. There's a whole ecosystem unto itself. Yeah. Um, and so, but but it's, you know, growing up in D.C., it's, you know, your local news is national news. And, right. You know, and it's it's one of the few places in the world where you can call your boss and say you're late to work because the motorcade, the presidential motorcade is going by, <laughs> which... Um, and they know which if it's is, true or not. <laughs> actually, they do. Yeah, they do know if it's true. Um, 
And that's something I've seen so many times over my life. I can remember standing in my front yard and um, watching the motorcade go by as a child and thinking to myself, this is a special place. This is a special place to be from. And I didn't really quite get it. I spent a lot of time as a little kid going to summer camp right by the National Cathedral, which is just a beautiful place. Um, and these tour buses would pull up, and I'd be outside in my you know, soccer shorts with my little summer crew um, um, my you know summer campers, my fellow campers, and these people would be getting out and taking photographs. And I thought, gosh, you know, I'm playing soccer in the middle of the day, and these folks have come from all over the world to see my city, and that's that's you know that's that's something that's pretty special. Yeah, that that really is. Listen, I want to talk for a few minutes about your experience in an all-girls uh, Catholic school, because I, I I don't think any young lady can go through that type of schooling and not have it uh, be a part of what shaped her. And, um, you know, I'd love to know your take on that experience and how you think it has helped um, with your leadership. Sure. Well, first of all, um, I went to, so as you said, I went to this all-girls Catholic school, but they were on the lookout for me because they knew I was coming because my aunt was a nun. And so from the time I was little, the nuns would sort of come up to me and say, you know, do you think this is a path you might want to pursue? And I thought, I don't know, I'm six. Um, So (laughs) when you're Catholic, we used to joke in my family that the nuns would say, you know, did you get the call from the big G, like God, in other words, did God call you to, you know. You're right. And um, and I thought, no, this isn't, you know, this is probably isn't the path for me. But I, um, so they were on the lookout for me before I got there because my aunt, the nun, kind of made the call and said, hey, my niece is coming. And, um, but it was, it was terrific. And particularly the school I went to, um, it's called Stone Ridge. It's right in Bethesda, Maryland. It's right next to um, Bethesda Naval Hospital and the National Institute of Health. And um, it was just, it was so wonderful for me. I mean, they really were my family, and I was there for 12 years, so I was a lifer, first grade through 12th grade, mm-hmm. and um, to this day, these women are very much in my life, um, and particularly for me, when I, um, my parents divorced when I was in middle school, and a lot changed at home, and that was, um, that was difficult, and so to have that consistent family at school was just terrific. And also, um, being an only child, I'm an Irish Catholic only child, which is just unheard of. Um, <laughs> yes, it, it is. was just awesome to have, you know, this community that I could um, spend time with. That was terrific. Yeah. Well, there's. I know that there was someone else in your life that probably you would consider maybe a mentor, and and that was your grandmother. Um, You did mention to me how much of an influence she was in your life. Talk about her for a few minutes. She was terrific. Um, My grandmother grew up on a farm in Iowa, and when she was 18, said, you know what? I'm out of here. This has been great, but I want some new experiences. So she changed her name from Agnes to Rita, moved to New York City at the age (laughs) of 18, knew not a soul, um, I think she got a job, like a secretarial post. Then she met my grandfather, who was a divorcee at the time, and 10 years her senior. Um, and all of those things were um, big, uh, big things back then. Yeah, a little unorthodox, um, right, for, yes, for an Irish Catholic. And yes. Totally unorthodox. So she married him. She was gaga about him. And she was just awesome. And so she... <clears throat> Um, it was really very much like a mother figure to me. 
and she was just the best. And so um, she was, you know, she was, my grandmother was part of the generation that still gets dressed for the day. You know, you get up at 6 a.m. and you get dressed for the day, your gloves, your hat, your skirt, your hose, everything. Um, she'd be appalled to know how much time of my life I spend in sweatpants. <laughs> but, um, but she just, she was awesome. She was just so lovely. And um, it was a huge, huge part of my life, so much so that when she passed away um, in middle school, my entire class came to the funeral, which was really unusual for a grandparent. But I think it speaks to the closeness of my of my school and them sort of understanding that this was a really kind of a big deal and they just, you know, wanted to be there. To yeah. Do, would you say that, you know, some of your adventurous side ha- came from your grandmother? She was a riot. And it's interesting because I, I really, I miss her so much now. I, I, I'm 35. It would be great to have um, been able to have gotten in trouble with her for the last 15 years. She just <laughs> would have been terrific. Um, but she... Absolutely. I mean, she just was, I, you know, that, that part of me wasn't fully expressed then because I was so young, but um, she absolutely was fearless, which I didn't appreciate. I mean, I never, it wasn't until I got older and I thought, wow, you moved to New York City by yourself, which today is a big deal. I mean, if you did that today um, with cell phones and being able to be in touch with your family and friends, that still would be a big deal, even if you knew no one. But for her to just schlep, you know, halfway across the country and set up shop, where she knew not a soul and changed her name because she thought she liked Agnes. Agnes was her given name, but she thought Rita, in her words, sounded a little more Rudy Kazooty. Um, <laughs> and so Rita sounded like a little more peppy, a little more city, a little more sophisticated. <laughs> and to this day, anyone with the name of Rita, I love. You could rob a bank. It's fine. I, if your name is Rita, you get a pass. Well, I love that so. for so many reasons, but uh, my husband's mother is Rita. My mother-in-law is is. Just the most wonderful woman, and she's a Rita as well. And there is a Saint Rita. Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, I like her already. And that's, that was my confirmation name, so Rita. So everyone else was, you know, Elizabeth and Mary and yeah. and all these other names, which are terrific. And I just had, you know, Rita, which was really kind of fitting. Yeah, yeah. So to be honest, I don't know what Rita did. I'm not sure what got her into sainthood. Who knows? But it was it was enough. I forget the story, too, and I'm sure that I've heard it. Um, but tell me what she did when she got to New York. What? I mean, did she well, work? She, I think she I think she worked for General Motors for a really long time. Okay, wow. Um, and um, um, and then eventually my grandfather, and she, who I never met, by the way, I never met him. He passed away when my mom was 16, mm-hmm. moved to Washington, D.C., um, and that's, that's how you get the Washington, D.C. connection. And my father, who had been born and raised in Massachusetts, his family relocated to Washington for my grandfather's job. Um, and they met at the University of Maryland, uh, fell in love, and um, they were, it's interesting, they were married in 1968, mm-hmm. but they didn't have me until 1979, which was sort of unusual back then to wait yeah. that long. Yeah, wow, wow. Um, was that but, because uh, of careers? Did your mom work as well outside the it house? Was, you know, both of my parents um, were small business owners, so my father worked in real estate, um, had a small company, and my mom um, had her own company placing uh, secretaries uh, for full-time employment at law firms in Washington, okay? Okay. Mm -hmm. And so she, so from the time I was probably 12, I had the top, the largest 100 law firms in Washington memorized in my head because she had a poster on her office. So, (laughs) and she was a pistol. She was driving around, speeding always. She had speeding tickets all the time. Speeding in her um, 
With her cell phone. Do you remember, Sue, when the cell phones were in the car? I do. I do. And they were three times as big as they are now. They're humongous. So she had her cell phone in the center console. And then she got really uh, sort of technologically advanced. She was really proud of herself because she figured out how to do the speaker above (laughs) her, um, you know, the the little drop-down panel thing. Yes. So we would be in the car. First of all, she would have me drive. People don't realize this, but I've been driving since I was nine. Oh. So my mom would be on the phone <laughs> making calls, and she would take her hands off the steering wheel, and we'd be in the Beltway mixing bowl, Sue. I mean, this is, this is, <laughs> this is not a place for an <laughs> She would just say, I need to, you know, take the wheel. So I would just take the wheel, and I was scared to death, and I would just I would drive for her while she was on the phone. Fo- I mean, she just... I mean, they would throw her in prison. (laughs) (laughs) She sounded like a very hip, cool mom. Very busy. You know, she was busy. She had things to do, and she couldn't be bothered steering, apparently. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You're totally calling her out right now, you know. I am calling her out. I am, absolutely. (laughs) But I will tell you, she is the best. So when you live in the city, anyone listening to this knows, when you live in the city, uh, parallel parking is do or die. You live or die by parallel parking. Mm -hmm. And she was terrific she was fearless she was fierce and so I live in Boston now and about two years ago when I moved here I um, I executed a no look reverse parking spot from halfway across the parking lot and I I I think I put it on Facebook afterwards, and I said, you can take the girl out of D.C., but you can't take D.C. out of the girl. (laughs) And actually, I got out, and this one woman just sort of clapped for me. She was, like, standing there waiting. So so that is... That is something that my mom has has given me, a gift, the gift of parallel parking. The gift of parallel parking. That is so funny because people who can do it well, you know, they want you to know it. And people who can't, you know, it's it's a flaw. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Listen, I want to talk a little bit about your years at JMU. You got your bachelor's at at James Madison. Um, You also went on to get a master's um, at Georgetown. Am I right? Right. So I I was a late bloomer, so I actually left college when I was a sophomore. So I went to, I started off at Elon in North Carolina and I left after my sophomore year. I just really wasn't ready to be a full-time college student then. I really sort of struggled in my early 20s. And so I left Elon and for the next five years I had every job you could possibly think of. I worked at a law firm, I worked in retail, I worked for a roofing company, even though I knew nothing about roofs. And the thing about working for a roofing company is the phone only rings when it's raining, because <laughs> people's roofs are leaking, but that's when I can't send people out to fix it because it is raining. Right. Um, so I had every conceivable job that you could ever possibly imagine. And then when I was about 24, 25, I kind of had this wake-up call and thought, um, this is something I really want for myself. I would like to get this degree. And so I went back to school, and I went to JMU. Um, I got a great deal. My father was a Virginia resident, um, and so I was in-state, which was terrific. And, but it was different because I was going – I was really a professional student, so everyone was much younger than I was. Um, I was 25, and I had uh, three different jobs. So I worked – I was taking 17 credits, working three jobs. Um, I had my 1991 – Jeep that I loved that was on its last legs um, that was great. It was the old Jeep where you feel like you're driving around on the couch. It was awesome. <laughs> they don't make them like that anymore. No. Um, where they're about to roll like, over on any turn. 
Right. And I don't know if you remember that government boondoggle cash for clunkers a couple years ago. I finally let go of my Jeep because they gave me, you know, an enormous amount of money to do so, which a lot of people in the country did. It was the the whole point was to get these cars off the road. Right. And I just, you know, and so I traded it in for this Jetta and nothing against Jettas. It's a lovely car, but I was so attached to the Jeep that my husband and I were in the parking lot and we dropped off the Jeep and I, I had, like, a conversation with the Jeep. I kissed it. I cried. It was this whole thing. And the people at the dealer were like, what is she, you know, what is she doing? <laughs> so I had this whole emotional goodbye because I was thrown up with this car. And then I got into my new car. And I, this is going to sound so ridiculous, but I didn't, want to, I didn't want my Jeep to see me leave in the Jetta. So, <laughs> so I went, like, the long way around the dealer. And I just, it was just, it was like sitting there in the parking lot. I felt so bad for it. So I went the lot and my husband was like, oh my, what are you doing? So <laughs> Shannon, this sounds like a sitcom. But so, so when I was at JMU, I mean, I was all business too. So I commuted between DC and JMU, which for anyone listening is about a two and a two and two and a half hour drive. Mm-hmm. And wow. so I had a little apartment on campus where it was myself and my little dachshund. He was my travel buddy. And I would go to school um, from about 8 in the morning until about 10 o'clock at night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday through Thursday. Thursday, I would hop in my Jeep, drive down to D.C., where I was a columnist for two local Washington newspapers. Um, And that's really why I needed to be in Washington, because the people I was interviewing were in Washington. So I had a weekly column. Um, I wrote for the Percival Gazette and the Alexandria Times, two small newspapers, but they really were terrific for me because they just, one, they weren't paying me anything. So I had carte blanche to write about whatever I wanted, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was just, it was wonderful. Years later when I would go to CNN, which was an extraordinary opportunity and in and, and, and many ways, I did miss the full freedom of being at a much, much smaller outfit. Um, but I, I, so I did this commute for two years. So I, and it was, it was wild. It was the most productive I've ever been. I'm actually almost the most proud of those two years of almost anything else. Um, and then I left JMU and um, was able to get a job at CNN. And I was just so thrilled. I remember um, weeks leading up to the interview, I really wanted to sound sharp. And so I watched C-SPAN for hours on end, <laughs> um, C-SPAN 1, 2, and 3, um, just in case they were going to ask me about some obscure House bill that was going to pass or something, something. Um, and, and I'll never forget waiting in the green room at CNN, and I was so nervous. Um, and they, you know, they, they, they bring you in. And then, as anyone who's listening can appreciate, then you don't hear from these people for months. And so you have no idea how it went, and so you're writing them letters. And I tell my students at Emerson, you've got to send letters. You've got to do that personal touch. If you just send you know, a resume out into outer space that does no good, you've got to follow up personally. Mm-hmm. And so I finally, finally heard from them, and I was just thrilled. Um, and that began a five-year adventure in Washington during the 2008 presidential election, which was just a wild wild time to be working in cable news, particularly at CNN, because at that time, um, there were so many voters across the country who truly were conflicted, who truly were undecided. And so at that time, 
CNN was the place where they came to figure it out. And so it was up to us to present all the information as best we knew how so that they could make that decision. And so when you work in the Washington Bureau, as I did, and for part of this time I worked the overnight shift, and anyone who's ever worked the overnight shift <laughs> knows that um, it, is, it is an adventure unto itself. First of all, you haven't seen the sun for like half a year. Right. <laughs> how, do you, yeah, how do you stay alert and awake and energetic when, you know... Well, you know, it's interesting because you, so you haven't seen the sun, so your skin's kind of this, like, weird translucent thing going on. Um, <laughs> and then I would – so I, I ran – I was the overnight editor for CNN during the um, campaign, for part of the campaign, presidential campaign in 2008. And so what people don't understand is I was literally the only person in the building, okay? It was me, the security guy at the front desk – and then the vacuum guy with the vacuum jetpack who would vacuum all of the offices at three in the morning. The three of us were tight. <laughs> and so it was that sounds a little lonely. Oh my gosh. It was lonely. And so people so Atlanta, where CNN is headquartered, is fully staffed. There's a bazillion people in Atlanta, New York, same thing. DC was just me. Oh my um, gosh. and so you're getting all these calls from viewers all across the country. It was so interesting because they you know, the phone rings all night long. And mostly it's editors. I'm checking in with you from different bureaus about stories for the next day. Um, and also, I was managing 15, camera, 15 to 25 camera crews who were following all of the presidential candidates all across the country, um, which is tricky because, you, I mean, if, I don't know if you were, I'm sure you recall, but you had the Fred Thompsons of the world, Giuliani, Mike Huckabee, pa I mean, just all, not Palin yet, she had, this, this was too soon for her. Um, this was in 2008. I mean, Hillary, I mean, just... And, and tracking these folks from state to state, from day to day to day, is is an algorithm unto itself. Right, and getting um, and making sure you get every single solitary fact and comment, and you know, it's right. Like, and so, and it was, it was so interesting, particularly being on the overnight shift. You know, you come home in the morning, and my husband and I live in Washington D.C., right in an area um, called Dupont Circle, which is a really busy area, lots of foot traffic, lots of cars, lots of this. And when you work the overnight shift, you, you realize that the world truly is not built for people who are trying to sleep during the day. Um, and so it is, I can remember, I would go into my front window, which sat on a main artery in Washington, D.C., and so there's all this foot traffic of people going to work in the morning. And I'd be sitting there um, at 9 a.m. with a martini. And so... <laughs> Um, and people would look up at me like, oh, my, you know, what is she doing? And, <laughs> she has a um, problem. Listen, guys, <laughs> I just come off a 12-hour shift. It's my evening. So right. <laughs> it is kind of thing. And the one thing I will say is that my, you know, my boss at the time, um, uh, his name is Mike Maltis, he, the best thing he could have done for me was every morning when I signed off to go home. Mm -hmm. um, so I would get into work at like 9 p.m. the night before, and then I would walk out the door the next morning at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m., whatever it was. For five um, years did you do that, Shannon? I did that for, no. Okay. Thank God. Um, I did that for about six months um, during, the presidential, um, during the presidential campaign. Okay. Um, and I would sign off in the morning, and he would say good night, which was so helpful because it put me in the mindset of, you know, going home and going to bed. Right. And would you sleep all day? Never. No. no. I would go home. I, you know, it's so funny because when you do that shift, you really have to lie to yourself. 
and say, you know, I, I got four hours of sleep. That's enough. Or I got two and a half hours of sleep. That's probably enough. Um, and it is, you know, it's a challenge. And at the time I was, um, I was engaged and I said to my boss, I really, if it's possible, it'd be terrific if I could at least get off the shift the month before my wedding because, you know, my skin is like this weird color and I haven't, you know, and I'm a little cranky and I have, and I actually, I don't drink coffee. So, um, I've never, up until recently, I'd never had a cup of coffee in my entire life. So staying awake was, was, was difficult. So sometimes I would, when no one was around, I'll know this now, cause I'm telling you, I would literally just run around the floor and just like do like a quick 360 around the studios just to kind of get, you know, myself pumped up. And as I said, the three of us, myself, the head of security and the vacuum guy, um, it was basically the three of us against the world. And so at three in the morning, we would all go to the vending machine and share a bag of Doritos, which is sort of our thing. Um, <laughs> and that was an event that we, you know, we looked forward to. Yeah. A couple jumping jacks and you're good to go. That's right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Tell me what, you know, that's kind of an exciting um, uh, type of industry to work in. And certainly at CNN, there's, you know, you're, you're hearing and seeing the news all the time, 24-7. Tell me what was maybe one of your most memorable experiences during those years. I mean, I, you know, the whole, for me, what stands out is the, 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 the choice between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama for so, I mean, that went on for months and months and months and months and months. And it was so interesting to watch all of that unfold. And so it was, and then finally, when it was decided, um, when, when he was the, you know, nominee, it was just, it was, it was something that we calculated and watched on a day-to-day basis. And so you didn't sort of appreciate the historical, you did appreciate the historical nature, but no one, none of us really actually could until later, I think. Um, and you have this cast of characters um, that comes through the door with, with presidential aspirations. And so it was always interesting because in the beginning, these folks would come in, and they would always come in with an entourage, right? Mm-hmm. And they sit in the green room, and then you get them, you prep them for their interview, and they go on air. Um, and then as, you know, many of them dropped out, they didn't have the support for whatever reason. And so as their support dwindles, so does their entourage. So whereas four months earlier they may have come in with ten people, now it's just them and one other person. <laughs> right. Or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and it was just such an interesting time to be so up close. Um, and I think we really had a responsibility to the viewers. Um, and CNN really at, at that time, certainly five years ago, um, was a place where undecided voters, of which there were many in this country, really sort of um, parked it. That's where they parked their remote while they were trying to figure things out. And we certainly were aware of that. Um, and it was, you know, we, I, we certainly don't get into politics personally at the office at all. Um, and it was just, it was certainly interesting to see how this played out with all of these candidates. Well, and especially with the, you know, the, the concept of, you know, would we, for the first time, have a female president? That's a, you know, a huge topic. Huge, huge. And, um, 
And of course, that is, you know, that's an evergreen topic that's relevant again very much right now. And we'll see what happens. And actually, tomorrow, there's the Massachusetts Conference of Women here in Boston, Massachusetts. Senator Clinton, um, Secretary Clinton will be speaking. Um, I will be there. Good. um, And um, uh, just to hear her. But um, I'm actually there on behalf of uh, the Junior League of Boston, which is a women's organization, which is an international and national women's organization, but we have a Boston chapter, so several of us will be there tomorrow. Um, Not in support or not in support of Hillary, just to be be there. Part of the Um, discussion. Yeah, but but no, it was it certainly was an interesting time, and um, and I remember you know Washington D.C. just, I mean the inauguration was wild. First of all, it was like negative 25 degrees, and the day of inauguration. I mean it it, it was one of the coldest days in the entire world, and I had just gotten off the overnight shift, and I was trying to find our camera crew who were um, out in the field, and these guys were starving. They hadn't had anything to eat in, you know, 12 years. So I was trying to get them sandwiches. And, <laughs> and, um, and the whole city, the, Washington, D.C. is a grid, so the whole city was sort of shut down, and there were all these streets that were closed for the inauguration for, for, for good reason, but for logistical reasons, it was kind of a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And so um, it took me like two and a half hours to get these guys these sandwiches. It was so cold. Um, and the city, it was, I've never seen my city like that. I've never seen so many people um, in Washington, ever. I mean, it was just extraordinary, regardless of, of you know, your political proclivity. It, just to see the, sh- the sheer number of people in D.C. was unbelievable. And we had all kinds of offers to rent our house. I mean, Sue, you and I could have retired by now if we decided to rent our house for that week. I mean, it was just Wild people were coming from all over the world and saying to people, "I will rent your apartment. I'll sleep in your tub. Whatever. I yeah. just want to be there." Uh, you <laughs> know, and um, that's going to so, happen here next year when the Pope comes <laughs> to yes. Philadelphia. Yeah, yes. people you know, are talking about renting out their homes. No, absolutely. He is so. Int- I have to say, as as someone who is Catholic, although I, I, I will, I can't tell you the last time I've been to Mass. Um, that is he is he is really changing the landscape in many ways definitely um yeah. for the way in which P, at a time when it is so critically needed there's a shortage of good yes um of good leaders in the church and i will say um that nuns in many ways are the backbone of the catholic church they are the ones that do the social work they are the ones that do the outreach um they are just critically critically important to the infrastructure um, of the church. They are just awesome. And I think, you know, a lot of people think of nuns as, um, I don't know what people think. They think of them as, you know, maybe conservative in some way or, or kind of strict or, or what have you. And the nuns I knew were hysterical, mm-hmm. were, um, you know, my aunt had, my aunt the nun had, I think, two master's degree and a Ph.D., um, she could have written her own ticket anywhere, but really felt called to service, which was a great lesson for me early on, which is one of the reasons why I feel um, it's important to me to, to serve now, um, and I do that as often as I can. Um, and in fact, I think I was talking to someone about this the other day, it was the nuns that brought me to a local watering hole and gave me my first beer. <laughs> <laughs> 
so, no, well, they have to have they have to have a vice, you know, to to for all the stuff they see and the hard work they do. They're they're certainly allowed to do that. They do, and in fact, my aunt's order was so. If you'll recall, they used to all wear the habit, which is quite frankly, it's itchy, it's wool, mm-hmm. it's awful. You know? Yes, yes. And so her order was one of the first that said, "To heck with that. We are not doing that. That is just." That is, that is no good. Right. So, we're taking them um, off. So they, yeah, we're not doing that. We're not doing um, that. So they were, they were pretty, very ahead of their time. Uh, Shannon, listen, we're, we have to take a quick break for our sponsors. And when we come back, I'd love to, to get right into your decision to, to leave CNN and become a teacher. Perfect. We'll be right back. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Are you the parent of a daughter in middle school? If so, I must tell you about an upcoming event at Mount St. Joseph Academy. As the parent of an alum, I know firsthand the value of their academic excellence, athletic and arts programs. This private, all-girls Catholic high school in Montgomery County provides the foundation our daughters need to go on to leadership roles at top universities and future careers. I know my daughter did. To register for the open house, go to msjacad.org backslash open house. And be sure to ask about their financial assistance and scholarship programs when you visit msjacad.org backslash open house. Have you ever wondered about the magic of Paris? Traveled there before? You haven't experienced Paris until you've traveled with us. I'm Chloe Johnson, the owner of CJ Tours. I became hooked on the mystique of all things Parisian after just one visit to the City of Light. CJ Tours, a travel, fashion, and product company, provides an experience unlike any other when it comes to exploring the hidden gems of Paris. We connect you with boutiques off the beaten path. We provide the opportunity to go behind the scenes with some of the most celebrated designers Paris has to offer. You can even purchase one-of-a-kind French pieces as mementos of your trip, or ask us to source that special piece just for you. CJ Tours and our unique products are designed to provide that Parisian je ne sais quoi and allow you to experience Paris like never before. To learn more, contact me at Chloe Johnston at cjshoppingtours.com or simply visit chloejohnston.com for more information. Welcome back, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch. I am... Uh, in the studio today, but uh, by phone, we have Shannon Adler. And Shannon is an adjunct professor of broadcast journalism and media trends at Emerson College, uh, a previous writer and producer for CNN. And um, just before the break, we were, you know, talking about your life at CNN and living in D.C. and all of the crazy things that go on there. Um, but let's let's talk about your decision to to leave right. that right. and uh, become a teacher. How did that right. come about? So now this is this is the next phase, part due, if you will. Right. Um, 
So I live in Boston now. I've been here for about three years. Um, and we, when I say we, I mean my husband and my dachshund and I moved here. Um, he was a Sloan Fellow at MIT. He got an, an opportunity to do a one-year program. And we thought it would be sort of an adventure to pick up and move. Um, and so we did. And um, I got an opportunity. So Emerson College, where I teach now, Emerson College in Boston is a communication and film school. And so the students we have, unlike a lot of college campuses where students are really kind of undecided and, and, and sort of figuring things out, the students who are at Emerson are there for a reason, and that is because they know that they're going to go into some, some um, uh, derivative of those fields, right? So mm -hmm. they're there because they want to be there. Um, and so they had an opening for an adjunct, and a friend of mine who works at the college who's just terrific, his name is Jack Casey, he runs the radio program there, WERS, um, called me one day and said, can you get over to campus because, um, uh, you know, we'd love to talk to you. And I, I said, well, sure. So I was crossing the street, I was on the phone with him, and he sounded kind of urgent, and he's not really an urgent guy. He's, he's been on the radio for 40 years. He's a really calm and measured guy. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, Jack. I said, do you, I said, is it, is like a teacher sick or something, or do you want me to be a guest speaker? Um, is that, is that what, I, it wasn't really clear what he wanted, and so I, I didn't really sort of understand what he was asking me. And so I remember I was crossing the street and I was asking him, I said, is it that you guys need a guest speaker? He said, oh, no, no, no. I said, oh, um, I didn't realize that there was an adjunct position opening. I just knew that he wanted me to get over there. Okay. And I said, this is like, does a teacher have mono or something? Do you need me to like fill in for a day? Like, I don't, you know, what is it that you're saying? Why are and you I being asked, so cryptic? Tell me what you want. Right. So I was crossing the street and I said, I don't get it. I said, who's going to teach the class? And he said, you. And I almost actually got hit by a bakery truck. And I went, oh, my God. I thought, well, this will never work. I've never taught before. I have no business being in a classroom. Um, this will never happen. So I walked over to Emerson. It was just right around the corner from where I lived in Back Bay, Boston. And I was really casual and laid back. Um, and I met this woman um, named Marsha who's been at Emerson for a long time. She's just terrific. Um, and we sat down. And within, so I, I went into her office thinking there's, you know, as my students would say, 0% chance times affinity, infinity that this is going to happen. <laughs> um, and so I was just really relaxed. And after 30 minutes of speaking to her, you know, we had all these people in common in the business, um, both print, radio, and television. She's been around for a long time. She's just terrific. And I thought, this light bulb went over my head, and I thought, oh, my God, this might actually happen. This is so crazy. Um, <laughs> that was a so, pivotal and, moment and that he believed, you know, that, that he picked up the phone and called you. He saw that, that you had this ability. It was wild. And so they offered me this class. It was a graduate-level course. And I thought, oh, my God, these wow. people are going to know more than I am. I'm not going to have anything to show them because when I um, – when I was at my graduate program at Georgetown, I got this past May, I got a, received a master's in international relations at Georgetown at the School of Continuing Studies, which is targeted to folks like me who are working full time, who are only able to go at night. And my class at Georgetown had some heavy hitters in it. I mean, the students were just phenomenal. Um, and in some cases, the students had been working in the industry as long as the professor. And so when they told me I was teaching grad school, I thought, oh, God, I hope, you know, I'm, hope, I'm, hope I'm able to contribute to these 
students, and I walked in the door, and they were all, you know, 23 or 24, and I thought, oh, thank God, at least I can. <laughs> at least they're younger than me. Them <laughs> so that, was my, that was my first foray, and I was, I was absolutely terrified. I, I don't think people, you know, teachers have feelings, too. We get scared as well. Mm-hmm. I still get scared. You know, it's um, when you're staring out into a sea of faces, you really read body language, and you're, and you're really trying to engage as much as you can. And so my teaching methods, I think, are totally unorthodox. Um, I would I, love to be a student in your class, by the way, Shannon. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. Too. We have a lot of fun. I um, bet. But, uh, and so I'm, I'm not, I, I'm not, my brain isn't programmed that way. And so the best I can do for my students is what I try to do every week is really give them kind of a real-world taste of what they're going to find. Um, and so the more academic structuring is left for my colleagues who really kind of get that and have been doing it for a while. But for me, it's, it's I want them to be able to walk in the door, hit the ground running. And we talk about a lot of things that you won't find in textbooks. We talk about gender discrimination. Um, we talk about kind of the, the, the unseen side of publishing. Um, we talk about what they can expect. Um, and it is, I, I honestly, Sue, I spend, I spend hours and hours every week preparing these syllabus because I just, my, my, in my, my nightmare scenario is, is somehow not serving them, is somehow not giving them everything they need to succeed. And so um, it is, and we have conversations about um, news and, uh, and, and the business of news. And that's one of the things that a lot of students don't understand, which is it's not enough to, um, to you know, being a good storyteller, crafting a story. Those are, those are all very important things, and knowing how to execute and produce and write. And, um, but you have to understand the business model of news. Um, and when you do that, when you walk in the door, you're just much more likely to succeed. Yeah. So those are some of the things we talk about. And I've also been talking to them about native advertising, which is something that I've been speaking about lately. Yes. I was talk- in London a few weeks yeah. ago giving a speak, uh, uh, talk about native advertising, and mm-hmm. I was just in the last two weeks um, appointed a pointer fellow at Yale University, so I'll be there um, in the spring. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm excited. So we'll we'll see we'll see how that goes. I just got an email from them today, and we're going to work on the syllabus. I work on the lecture, but one of the things I talk to my students about is the publishing model, and so and how that's changing. And so publishers have seen so much revenue just walk right out the door because of Facebook and Twitter and people getting their news elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so what they've done, Sue, is they've turned to um, brands, you know, Nike, um, and they turned to companies, companies and brands, and said. Let's create content together that will live on our website that matches the editorial environment that we have um, that, um, that, is, that is co-produced. And so what that means is you may open up the New York Times and see an article on natural gas. And you're reading through the article, and what you may not realize is it's actually not an article. It's an ad, but it's an ad designed to look like an article. And so... Um, there is no precedent. So sponsorship in news, um, in news programming, is nothing new, Sue, as you know. So mm-hmm. you may or may, you're probably too young for this, but 
Um, back in the day, there was the Camel News Caravan, which was Camel <laughs> Cigarettes sponsoring, you know, the NBC News broadcast. It was, and whether you, whether you feel that's okay or not okay, but it was right out there in the open, you know, the Carol, the Camel News Caravan. Um, and now, what you have is intentionally hidden sponsorship. Um, and there's no, there's absolutely zero precedent for that um, in, in, in this country for, for news. And so that really kind of changes things. And so native advertising is the new paywall for publishers. Um, and it's a billion-dollar business. It's growing. And I wanted my students to be aware um, of what that means for the publishing model because it really is you know, changing, changing the landscape quite dramatically. Uh, Shannon, do you think it's a good thing? Well, you know, it's interesting. So it's really easy for someone in an academic ivory tower to wring their hands and say, this is bad, this is bad, this is awful, this is the death of journalism, we're all going to die. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's really easy to do, but at the end of the day, you've got to pay the bills. And for right now, native advertising is paying the bills. Um, and so, I mean, there have been considerable layoffs all across the board, um, of really good people um, who have worked really hard, but um, you know their their news organizations aren't able to sustain um, them financially. Yeah, so, you know it's a it's a complicated topic. I think that you know the whole um, introduction of technology into society and how it rapidly changes daily. Um, I would imagine you were talking about how you prepare, you know, for your classes, and current events is certainly a topic um, that I think you would bring into the classroom. And because Thank we you. have, yeah, we have access to so much information um, so a globally. So that, Sue, is just this week I was talking with my students about Ferguson, everything that's happening in Ferguson, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things we were talking about is the way in which news, so news finds us. We don't necessarily find news. In other words, there are algorithms out there on Facebook. Um, so we, let me back up for a second. If you compare news about Ferguson and if you look at Facebook and you look at Twitter and the conversations that were happening on Facebook and Twitter when Ferguson happened back in August, mm-hmm. um, the shooting happened on August 9th. So Twitter was just blowing up with tweets about Ferguson, 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 Ferguson. So much so that mainstream media finally did something, decided to do something about it two days later. Okay, so Twitter was just hashtag Ferguson, hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag just so many conversations were happening on Twitter about Ferguson, really important conversations. Facebook was talking about the ice bucket challenge. Facebook absolutely was not a part of that conversation at all. And the reason for that is, is because Twitter is a neutral news platform. In other words, we shape what Twitter is. Whereas Facebook has an algorithm that only gives us news that it thinks that we want to see. And so how in the world would that algorithm ever function to let us know about Ferguson? It wouldn't, unless you already lived in Ferguson or liked a business in Ferguson on a Facebook like page. So. If you only got your news from, from Facebook, which 30% of adults do, you would have had no idea about Ferguson whatsoever. Yeah, that's and so, so we talk about how, um, how social media, particularly Facebook, segregates us because Facebook um, has spent a lot of money to develop algorithms that show us 
what are things we want to see. By where um, we so, click, right? Just exactly. to kind of simplify so the, the, it, right. Early, the early precedent for this was TiVo. If you remember, TiVo came out, it was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so TiVo did that for us as well, right? So there was this great article, I think it was in the Washington Post, the title of the article was, My TiVo Thinks I'm Gay. It was a great article about this woman, and I don't remember if she was gay or not gay. That was sort of irrelevant. But she liked Will and Grace. And so her TiVo, and I'm sure you remember the show Will and Grace. Yes. One of the funniest shows ever. (laughs) Yes. So her TiVo went, oh, you like Will and Grace? Well, then here, and it just gave her all of these other shows with with, a cast of gay characters. And and it was just so interesting because just from that one thing, TiVo thought, ah, I know exactly what you want. And in many ways, Facebook is doing the same thing. It's sort of saying, oh, you clicked on this, oh, you shopped here. We're going to aggregate the news and give you what you want to see. And Mark Zuckerberg just last week said that they are now now, um, in the business of personalized news. So they are going to try to create personalized news for each one of us, which is really interesting and, and further um, entrenches this notion of, of segregated news. So in many ways, the Internet was supposed to be this great equalizer for all of us. All of this information was going to be accessible to anyone who wanted it. Um, and what's happened is the Internet, for many of us, has become just a, 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 an echo chamber, a, a, a loop that only um, – validates what we already believe. Um, and so that's one of the things I want my students to be careful when they are thinking that they're getting all the information out there. So I have, I have, you know, I have a good friend who's um, Iranian, and it's so interesting because the stuff that, 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 that she gets in her Google alerts and her Facebook and all that kind of stuff is completely different from what I get. Well, you Even know, it keeps I us, want to see that stuff. So yeah, it, it almost keeps us narrow-minded, right? Very much so. And yeah. I think, I think the, the biggest thing is for us to, at, at the very least, I mean, every, you know, people are busy. People have kids, carpools, careers. Um, they're mowing their lawn. They're doing all kinds of stuff. I just, it's, it's, it's too much to ask um, most of us to to independently verify our news and, 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 and make a large effort because people just don't have time. But I, I think if we're all at least aware that at any given time we just aren't getting the full puzzle, I think that's a huge step forward. Yeah. Well, you know what? And just to discuss that and be aware of it will we'll encourage us to seek out information from, from you know, multiple platforms so that we don't right. kind of stay stuck in that you know, single-minded uh, flow of information. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. really interesting to point that out, Shannon. Um, you know, I, I, I think a lot about um, the women or the young women, I guess, that are sitting in your classroom. And as a teacher, what you see in them um, that either speaks to, you know, I, I'd like to know what their mindset is as far as leadership. And sure. and what you see in the young women today, um, are they uh, pursuing leadership? Would you say? Do you feel that they are inhibited? Um, how do you see them, just in general? So one of the things we talk about is language and how important language is. The words we use to describe what we seek. And so by that I mean, I had a student, a female student, come to me, and she said. 
I sent my resume out to so-and-so. Um, it's been 10 days, and I haven't heard anything. And she then went on to say, I don't want to be too pushy. Should I follow up again? And so I said, let's pause for a second, and let's replace that word with something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and we replaced that word with assertive. And, and just that, just slight tweaking, changed the entire sentence. And she said, oh, well, I do want to be assertive. Of course I do. I do want to follow up with this person. I mean, I want the job, don't I? I said, absolutely, you want the job. And so the language that we use is so important, and you know about this too. And I look at one of the things I do is for all of my students, um, it's helped them with their resumes. And it's really interesting to see the stories on, you know, women. My, my, I will tell you myself, I only recently, when I was applying for this position at Yale and when I was speaking in London, I kind of had to get my act together and tweak my resume a little bit because I hadn't brushed up on it in a while. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this resume the last time I wrote it when I was 30. So I was, I was no kid, right? I was 30. I was married. I had, you know, had a career. And I went back at the age of 35 and looked at my resume and I was just, it was, I was Appalled is not the right word. It was so interesting the way in which I described my skills and abilities in my resume. And I, in fact, I had a couple of awards that I had won at CNN, which I took off. And I remember my husband said, where are those two awards? Where I don't see those. Where? Because I, I was, he's, we both edit each other's, you know, we, we, we both you know, we, we serve as each other's editors. Right, right. And he said, where are those two things? Where did you take them off? And I said, oh, I just didn't want to sound too, you know. Oh, you know. no. Yeah. Um, and, the- and actually, I did that when I was in my mid-20s. So we put those back on. And yet still, um, even when I wrote it when I was 30, I just missed the boat so profoundly. Um, and the language I used was like distant, not active, mm-hmm. um, and not and not fully – it wasn't a full account of my abilities. Um, uh, it just wasn't a full account of my abilities. And I was, and that was intentional, right? So right. I wrote it in kind of a passive voice because I didn't really want to give myself credit for certain things. And it was so interesting when I saw it at 35, I thought, my God, this is awful. <laughs> but it's so, it's so in- interesting to me because I think of you, Shannon, as someone who you know, really has a lot of confidence and, you know, I think using the word proud for young women today is something that we should use. That It's okay. It's best to be proud of your accomplishments and not feel that it's, um, you know, kind of braggioso to do that. No, exactly. Yeah. And so with, and I'm so glad I did that because what I now, you know, I now help my students with their resumes and help them try to get jobs. And, um, and I'm very, very aware of of language. And so when I see a CV or a resume where someone is doing that, particularly a young woman, we will talk about it and I will sort of say, let's, let's rethink how to um, better voice your ability here because you're just not quite doing it justice. And so for me, I mean, I, you know, I made, I fell into many of these traps um, um, in the professional world, um, not advocating salary wise for myself, Mm -hmm. not not being fully prepared to have a conversation about salaries. Um, and it's through my numerous <laughs> mistakes that um, I think that I can be 
helpful to my students now. And, and also because I didn't really enter the workplace in a serious way until I was about 26 or so, um, 25. And then at that point I was at CNN. And so I just did not have the tools then that I do now to have to be um, to advocate for myself. And so I think my students in many ways are light years ahead of me. I hope they are. Um, in terms of advocacy for themselves, but there still is there still is that language too that we it's so interesting it's so subtle mm-hmm. um, exactly. But when when I pick up on it, it's something that we sit down and talk about so that we can sort of restructure the language so that it's 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 not. Um, holding us back. Yeah, I you know what I agree with you so much. I think, you know, you can point out one word that someone is using and change it to the appropriate word and it changes their whole mental attitude about, you know, what they're saying. I couldn't agree more. No, it absolutely does. Yeah. It absolutely does. And the other thing is for my students is they um unlike you and I, everything they do is recorded forever. And so That's particularly right. Women And so employers are going to, you know, your Twitter page, your Facebook page, and all that kind of stuff. And so there, so the digital memory is permanent. And so that's another thing that people have, to, that my students have to think about that you and I, frankly, didn't have to think about. And that is the trend now is for each person to be a brand unto themselves. And you craft that brand through Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and blogs and all that kind of stuff in a very public way. And so... You don't – we were talking the other day about plagiarism and about how if you run a student a college newspaper and one of your fellow student editors um, is plagiarizing, do you name that person publicly? And if the answer is yes, then you understand that the Internet's memory is permanent and that that person forever, when you Google them, will be associated most likely with – um, that moment in their life, which was not a good moment for them, and whether or not that's fair, and how particularly my journalism students, more so perhaps than any other profession out there, do what they do publicly, right? So if they screw up, if they write an article that's incorrect or inappropriately sourced or, or borrowed from somewhere else without attribution, that is a public thing, and that is there for all eternity. And so so how do you draw the line between nurturing them as students and, and giving them all the chances that one deserves when they're developing their craft versus doing what the business calls for, which is to say, this is, this is not okay. Um, uh, there needs to be a transparent process in which there's a, you know, a mea culpa and you need to learn. So it's, 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 it's tricky. tricky. It's tricky. Um, Shannon, you know what? We're, we're at the end of the show. And I thank you so much. It was a great conversation and, and great advice from you. And I wish you much, much success um, at Emerson and at Yale. Sue, thank you so very much. It was lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much, Shannon. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and please feel free to reach out to my uh, website at womentowatch.net. Make it a great week, everyone.